It starts with people needing some help. It might be a girl you like, or some guys you're trying to impress, or even just an old buddy you bump into on the street. The most important thing is that you've got a reputation for smoking weed and they'd like some. Maybe they're new to town, or maybe they want to throw a party and want to impress someone as a one-off. But they need you. They need your help. So that's what you do. You start to help them out by buying weed on their behalf, and then you start charging extra because it soon becomes regular, and it's more than just a favor. And then you realize you're putting so much time into it that you need to find someone who sells large amounts at a discount. Eventually you realize weed won't cut it. The margins are too low and the work's too hard. By now you have four phones, way too many friends on Facebook, a day job you fucking hate, and so much of your time goes into being a dealer that you've given up hopes of it just being a hobby. Oh, and of course, you have your own addiction to take care of. Most of the time you'll be lucky to break even, but selling weed helps. Maybe the guy you buy off mentions mushrooms or MDMA or something else that's common. But the most important thing to remember is that it's a surprisingly short road to heroin. It pays the most, weighs very little, and you don't have to worry about spreading yourself too thin. Now you'll be able to get a little book of real valuable repeat customers, and if you're like me, you might just have had enough sense to never try your own product. But it's still a problem. Every person who buys is a ticking time bomb, a walking liability. And every day you work at this job, you're not doing something else, something with prospects. And it only takes one arrest to fuck it all up. And it only takes one idiot to lead to that arrest. See, what I did was I went after a certain kind of client. Someone who, through luck and opportunity, is rich enough to hide their addiction. Someone who doesn't look like an addict, if you get what I mean. They're hardly immune to the effects of addiction, but consequences are a lot less severe for the upper classes. Good thing that applies to their dealers, too. It's nice to have clients who don't die every few years. That's not to say their health is my number one priority. I've known most of them for going on eight years. I've helped them move, fix broken down cars, find dates, rehearse presentations, pick up deliveries, and on one occasion I even babysat one of their nieces while they got high in the garden shed. Sadly, I would have to admit that they're my closest friends, and about a fortnight ago something bad happened to each and every one of them. Normally I like to sell all my goods on a Sunday. No open door policy, no phone calls. I keep a consistent routine as it avoids trouble, but last Tuesday I had one of them knocking at my door. I was pretty pissed to have this guy, Rolo, don't ask, not his real name, turn up out of the blue. That's not how I like to do things, and I was pretty damn close to not opening the door. But, as you might guess, junkies are resistant to denial, and he wasn't going to go away out of politeness. So, in the end, I let him in. But to my surprise, he wasn't there to buy. He came straight in and put a brick of the stuff in my hand, leaving me totally speechless. He then went on this winding rant about his childhood and the things that his mother did to him and the scars she left, and after a long, long time, he eventually got to the point. I found it, Rollo told me. I found it in a gutter on the side of the road, way, way out in the middle of nowhere. I was driving home and my wife shot, oh man, I just spotted it. What a weird thing, right? My headlight just caught it and I was like, wait, was that? No fucking way. But it was, just a brick of a stuff waiting for me in a ditch in the middle of nowhere and... He paused and bit down on his thumb so hard that I thought he was going to snap it off like a baby carrot. I'll kill myself if I have this much, he said. I know it, you know it. 
Everyone fucking knows it, man. You can't give me all this, you can't. I looked at that brick and I realised I'll be dead within a day. And you, you've been so good to me. How much do I owe you? Like, seriously, all those times... You don't owe me anything, I said. You've been paid up for years. It's not about that, though. He replied. It's about the gesture. You helped me. So, here's what I'm thinking. You take this, and you just, you sell it. And any money you split with me, and then I use that money to buy more stuff when I need it. That way, I never have enough on me to just go, go crazy, you know? I can't even tell you how much strength this took, by the way. I've been driving the streets for like five hours just thinking this through carefully. I took the elevator up here three times. But I know it's what I need. I can't, I can't leave this place with that brick. I'll kill myself. I weighed it up in my hands. It was easily worth a grand, and I had to admit, what he said made sense. There was no way any addict could be trusted with that much, least of all him. And just to reiterate, it was worth a shitload of money. You found this? I asked, clearly incredulous. I glanced at the gold leaf symbol stamped into one side, failing to recognize it, but feeling an intense anxiety in its presence. In a fucking ditch? He said, his face elated. Someone must have just chucked it. Whoosh, straight out the window. Alright, I agreed. This is... Uh, this is a good deal. I added, hesitating for reasons I couldn't say. But I decided I was just being irrational because, by all accounts, this was a fucking good surprise. Free money is always a good surprise. Come on, I told him. I'll wail it out for you. Instinctively, he reached into his pocket and started counting notes. It's your stuff! I snapped and he laughed at himself. But I just shook my head and took it to my scales, where I began taking off just a little to give to Rolo. Pretty soon, I was left sitting in my flat on my own, staring at the brick with a sense of confusion. Partly at the preceding events, partly at the strange pit in my stomach, and partly because that symbol made my eyes hurt. Over the next week, that brick was sold in pieces to each of my customers, slowly whittling itself down until about half was left. Bit by bit, I sold it to all eleven of my regulars, and then, bit by bit, none of them came back. When it came to Sunday, a day when my phone is normally lit up and my doors are fucking tambourine, there was silence. I tried calling them all, but there was no answer for each of them. I cannot stress to you just how weird this is. Heroin addicts don't skip appointments with me. It just doesn't work like that. Not unless they're dead. And that was a harrowing thought to have. All of them? Man, even back then I took a long hard look at that brick. Something about it had bothered me the entire time, and now I was truly worried. Do you know what they'd do to me if I sold bad drugs to eleven different middle-class Londoners? One of them is a blonde girl in her twenties. Fucking blonde! Do you have any idea how bad that would be for me? My first stop was the news. At least three of the people I sold to were Oxbridge graduates with banking jobs, and I figured if they died, it'd be in the papers somewhere. People love those kind of scandalous stories, so I started googling names until I got a hit. It was... not what I expected. That blonde I just mentioned. I'm gonna call her Milky Bar. Anyways, she turned up in one paper having gone missing, last seen a few days before. It was a plea from her husband and parents, asking for her to come home. The paper mentioned her addiction, and they were worried she'd relapsed, or worse, died. Well, I was worried too. But what I knew that they didn't was that Milky Bar had a small flat she rented in a friend's name where she smoked before going to work. I also happened to have a key from a misguided attempt at seduction. Long story. I had an address and access, 
and I rushed there hoping to God I'd find her partying her tits off or handcuffed to a bed deep in withdrawal. If only. I entered quietly only to find a dingy shithole in a high-rise apartment that was a huge step down from the last time I'd been there. Somehow there were signs of decay. I mean ten plus years of rot and decay. Wallpaper was peeling, the ceilings were yellow, pipes had busted, plaster had chipped, the windows had faded. I'd been there just a year before and it had been a newly decorated flat. It wasn't squalor that had done the damage, no. It was derelict, broken down the way old houses are. Nothing about it made sense to me. I triple checked the address, but sure enough, that was the right place. So I kept looking, and eventually I found Milky Bar. At least, I figure it was her, because of the clothes. Really, I guess all I found was a pile of bones in a sundress with some faint straw-colored hair. Her skull, her mouth was wide open, and the sockets empty, and it just looked like she was in pain. And the porcelain tub was all stained a dark red, looking an awful lot like a puddle of blood. I felt like I'd stumbled into a crypt, the way her bones looked brittle with age, with little white teeth marks from rats. Was this a bad attempt at faking her death? I wondered. After a little more poking around, I found some papers stuffed between her pelvis and her dress. I pulled them out and unrolled them, recoiling from the smell and read. I don't want to put it all up in print, but she wrote about some fucked up stuff. Real nasty messed up things, like I just saw Seven messed up. It nearly made me sick, and struggling to understand anything in the moment, I put those crazy words down to her having a fucked up troubled mind. After looking around a bit more and not finding anything, I took the notes and left. At the bottom of the last page, she'd sketched the symbol from the brick in my flat, and that freaked me out. None of the people, aside from Rolo, could have possibly seen that symbol, and I did not like it being there one little tiny bit. It left me shaken, not just because of the potential trouble it might bring, but because I was worried that it really was Milky Bar in that tub, and that something awful had happened to her. So I decided to check up on the others. It wasn't easy, but I managed to visit at least two others before morning. The first of the two was a guy I'll call Snickers, who, if you can believe it, was a professor of English literature at KCL. He was something of a tortured artist when he was younger, and while he later grew up and let go of the artist part, he guarded the tortured part like a tiger protecting her cub. When I first knocked on the door of his own personal little fuck pad, I heard what I'd best describe as a kind of quiet sobbing and some shuffling. I wound up banging at his door for a good ten minutes before someone finally let me in. And it wasn't Snickers. The guy didn't even greet me or look surprised. He was a young man, early twenties, and I'd have bet my life that he was one of Snickers' many student hookups. Not that it mattered. But I followed him carefully as he held both his arms and shivered violently, tears streaming down his cheeks. Both of us sat down opposite one another, and the first thing he said was not what I expected at all. What the fuck happened, man? He said, stifling a sob. What? Where am I? He asked. I don't... I, I don't... What the fuck happened, man? Where did we go? Where's Snickers? I asked. What the fuck? We were all there. You saw exactly what happened, man. They made us watch. All of us. Me especially. You saying you don't fucking remember? I think you've mistaken me for someone else. I answered. What happened here? The kid stopped and stared at me for a long minute before sniffling and pulling his knees up to his chest, holding them close while he rocked back and forth. 
His eyes were distant, and when he spoke next, he didn't talk to me. I thought you were Dan, he said. Who are you? I'm a friend of Snickers, I answered. I was worried something had happened. The kid laughed, and for a brief moment I saw a network of cuts leading down his neck onto his chest. I don't know, he answered, a quiver in his voice. We were here, we got high, and then Jesus Christ. He broke down, holding his face in his hands and crying. I waited patiently until he could resume. Oh, it was fucking awful, man. You don't even know. They just, they didn't even come. We went to them, man, just flowing through, through, I don't even fucking know, the sky. We all just wound up there, washed up on the shore. And then they came and took us, and I thought it was all just a trip, you know? Just a bad trip, but it weren't like that at all. Oh, fuck, man, my mom. Oh, God, how am I even going to explain this to her? We've been gone so long. I looked around for a moment and took in the state of Snickers' apartment. Noticing the strange dust that coated everything, and the peculiar person-shaped imprint on the sofa. How long were you gone? I asked. You should know, man. You'd think they'd always keep fucking clocks. Where are the police? Where are the ambulances? It's been a year at least. No, I said. I saw Snickers just a few days ago. No? Yes, I answered. No, they kept us for years, man. I stood up and the boy flinched. But I happily showed him my phone, and the date, and even let him scroll through BBC News for a good few minutes. No, no, no. He mumbled before looking up at me, pleading. It wasn't just a dream, man. We fucking lived it. We lived it every day for years, all four of us. You don't know what it was like, the things they did to us, what they did to Snickers. He burst into tears, and this time I realized he wasn't going to recover quickly. I asked him if anyone else was around, and he feebly pointed towards a nearby bedroom door. What I found inside that room was not what I expected. You could have hung it in a modern art museum and no one would have noticed. Milky Bar upset me, but I'd done a good job convincing myself it was like a big elaborate ruse. It's easier to believe than God knows what. I mean, what was the alternative? That those things she'd written were true? Years spent taken away and subjected to humiliation, degradation, and unspeakable torture? But that room, I couldn't convince myself that was a ruse. I couldn't rightly say if Snickers was in there, but whatever it was, it had been a person once, and it now knelt on the bed in a position of supplication. Their face, it didn't really exist anymore, except for the mouth that had been cut so far back into their head I could glimpse vertebrae. The rest of the skull was just smooth, pitted, wrinkled skin, like a person's thumb after a long bath. The skin of their armpits, where the arms and torso met, had started to melt together, forming a broken webbed joint that forced their arms into prayer. All along their abdomen and back, human teeth had been implanted only to keep growing into strange bones that broke apart stitches and surgical staples, turning into grotesque, hairy, toothy tumors that covered their midriff like barnacles on a ship. They knelt in a pool of crimson liquid that looked much deeper than it was, rising to their belly button. The strange lapping water gave off a strange sensation of looking down into an enormous blood-red ocean. At moments it looked as thin as water, other times it looked viscous as slime mold. Rising up out of it were ten different limbs, each one thinning unnaturally until it terminated in a single lonely toe. New joints had been added to them, seemingly at random, so this person was hunched over their branching legs like an immense mangrove tree rising out of a blood-soaked swamp. And marching up out of the waters was a forest of mushrooms, no bigger than my thumb, tiny and identical like neat, orderly buttons, their caps opening and closing in a rhythmic dance that made my skin crawl. And then something twitched in the water, looking for the world like a breaching fish. 
and I was out of there, unable to even think or reason what had happened in clear terms. Like what they did to us, man! The boy screamed as I stumbled past him, tearing open his shirt to reveal a single large black equine eye embedded in his chest. It took years to grow us into this, fucking years! He screamed, his shrill voice following me all the way down the hall. And with that, I was back in my car, shaking, barely able to think. At this stage, I was doing mental backflips to explain what I'd seen, and somehow I got it in my head that what I needed to do was check up on the others. It had to be fake, I told myself. The only way I'd prove it was if I followed things up. I had to know. It's the human condition, and I couldn't walk away. I couldn't retreat. I couldn't possibly accept living in a world where anything I'd seen in that flat was real. I drove away from that block way too fast, but eager to get on and find answers. The closest place next on my list was an office run by a man I called Aero. He fancied himself as a sort of Gordon Gecko, Wolf of Wall Street kind of guy. But he was the richest man I knew, and whip smart too. I hoped to god he wasn't in on all this bullshit, and could offer some kind of help or explanation. Earlier that year he'd given me a security card for his building, and I luckily fished it out of my dash before going in. He had a floor or two in this massive high-rise, and I got the card out, ready to explain why I needed to enter the building at 2am to some bleary-eyed security guard, only to find the front desk empty. It was a simple flick of a switch to call the elevator, but I couldn't stop staring at the half-drunk cup of tea waiting for the guard. Probably gone to the loo, I thought, before briefly touching the ice-cold cup and calling it into doubt. Man, it was dark in there and unsettling in the way that nighttime officers always are. Any place that goes from busy to quiet has that air about it. The sense that once everyone goes home, something comes slinking out of the shadows to stretch its legs. I felt like I was intruding, but I couldn't bring myself to leave it yet. I was secretly trying to tell myself I'd been hallucinating in Snicker's place, and I desperately wanted someone to reassure me that that was true. I used the card to get access to Arrow's floor, and walked out into an otherwise dead office space. Even though the sky in London isn't very clear, I could still see a full moon hanging over the skyline, following me like an eye as I walked along the enormous windows. Aero's office was easily found. It was the only one with the blinds pulled shut, unlike the others that were clear and transparent as a scientist beaker. His name and title were on full display, and I could have walked right in, but something about the silence unsettled me. There was the sense that someone was moving around in those shadows ducking and scuttling below cubicles and desks, just out of sight whenever I turned. So I tried to peek through the blinds of his office first without going in, just to get a sense of what was in there. All I could glimpse was a desk chair facing me, and the dark outline of someone sitting in it. Stealing my nerves, I forced myself to open the door and found a desiccated corpse waiting for me. Although the skin was leathery and dry, pocked with peeling blisters and signs of decay, Enough of the features remained that I could easily tell it was Arrow. Unlike the others, he looked asleep, peaceful even. For a moment I stared at him, lost in silence, when something behind me fell over and I whipped around, heart thundering. It was Arrow, looking a little younger than when I'd last seen him. I was shocked to see him after I'd convinced myself of the corpse's identity, and for a moment I looked back and forth while he stumbled in, stopping to take a breath with his hands on his knees, before looking up at me and smiling. Oh, thank God you're here, he said, panting. What happened? I asked. How long has it been? Huh? How long has it been? He repeated. I'm amazed any of this is still here. N not long, I answered. I'd spent so long wondering if I'd have to come back, he said. 
I thought I'd never see this place again. What happened? Oh, who knows, he said. It's been so long I can barely remember my own name, let alone... Aero stared at me, his face wrought in confusion and his eyes pleading. When I told him my name, he looked deeply thankful. Uh, that's right, he said, nodding. Yes, I remember you now, and my... Uh, did I have a wife? N no, I said, shaking my head. I almost said something else, standing there so close to him. Looking back, I'm glad I didn't. Instead, I asked, Aeroman, you gotta tell me what the fuck is going on. Who is that in your chair? I guess, um, I, I wound up going somewhere, you know? It, it was beautiful, you should see it. They gave me everything, everything I could ever want, even eternal life. I was there for a lot longer than just one lifetime. That, he said, pointing to the body in the chair, that's the old me, my old shell before they gave me a younger one. They can do incredible things. It was beautiful. But now I'm home. <laughs> he laughed with relief and gently caressed the carpet. Home, sweet home. He smiled at me, turning into the moonlight for the very first time. An inexplicable wave of revulsion washed over me. I had to swallow it, trying hard to ignore the bile rising in my throat. It was hard to see, but something about his pallor unsettled me. Come on, I said. Let's get you back to yours. Once more, a look of confusion briefly flashed across his face, his eyes flicking to his surroundings before landing back on me. Of course, he said, nodding slightly. Home, this, this is, this isn't. I reached down and pulled him up, trying not to wince at the slick feel of his cold palms. Leaning down when I did, I couldn't help but notice a speck of blood across his shoes. They gave you everything. I asked. Oh, everything, he said, suddenly gushing. A human could want for nothing. Oh, the food, the clothing, the knowledge, it was divine. And the women? I asked. Magnificent, he smiled. Good, I said, trying to hold back a cry. Aero was gay. Let me go get my keys, I said, my voice just starting to break. I dropped them a while back. I turned and went to leave, stopping for a moment in the doorway to look at the doppelganger. He was staring at me, his eyes overcome with a frightening intensity. At that moment, I dropped the pretense and ran, making for a twisting path through the office, doing my utmost best to ignore the sounds of wet footprints behind me. I don't know if he was breathing or panting, but it sounded like a gale wind passing through a beehive. I was desperate to put something between this thing and myself, and for a moment I almost ran to the elevator, but at the last moment images of me slamming my finger into the call lift button as he shuffled out of the darkness burst into my mind, and I went for the stairs instead. The first thing I saw when I opened the door were the remains of the security guard. Unlike everything I'd seen so far, something about him bent over, blood pooling around his shredded entrails, grounded me. He hadn't been altered or butchered. It wasn't like some crazy nightmare. He'd been assaulted, and from the looks of it, stabbed, repeatedly. I nearly slipped in his blood, but I was careful, managing to shuffle around it before bounding down those stairs, leaping three or four steps at a time, almost willing myself to fall just in the hope that it'd get me down quicker. Above me, that thing burst into the stairwell. I half expected it to taunt me, but it just made these shrill, almost bird-like cries of joy. It wasn't far behind me, and it closed the distance fast. It was barely a single flight behind me when it spread its arms, let out a swine-like squeal, and jumped headfirst in my direction. It hit the concrete barrier hard and broke its neck immediately, falling in a broken pile of muscle and bones just a few feet away. It was like it didn't even know the limits of its own body, and I shuddered at the thought of what it might once have been. As it lay there, 
A small pool of that crimson fluid slowly oozed out of every orifice, and from that strange blood rose thousands of little brown mushrooms, unfolding their caps with the smooth grace of a dancer. Barely a minute later and the flesh within had started to crumple and hiss, leaving loose skin hanging off bones like cloves on a washing line, the slackening mouth leering at me like a drunken idiot's grin. I don't remember much else from that night. I awoke in the driver's seat of my car a few hours later, engine idling at a green light as a van driver went caveman on his horn. I drove home, ready to write the whole mad night off, eager to pretend it hadn't happened. It was something I might have managed, were it not for the brick waiting for me in my flat. Now I've finally caught up with my rest, and I'm left wondering if it's worth checking out the other eight people. I have maybe a night or more before the police realize I'm the common denominator for a lot of carnage and misery, and maybe getting ahead of it is the only chance I have of knowing what the hell to do. But today, when I finally collapsed in my bed, I dreamed. I dreamed of a city on a coast with blood-red waters, a collapsed moon hanging in the sky. I dreamed of things that live there, filled with ambivalence and cruelty. I saw dungeons and torture chambers filled with people toiling away, and amongst them I saw Aero, Rolo, and Milky Bar, old and frail, beating rocks with stones while shadow-covered figures grow ready to satisfy strange and unspeakable desires. And when I awoke, I was screaming, that strange brick burning its symbol into my palm. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Tom. Don't forget to check out Sleepless Readings on YouTube to hear these stories first. And as always, stay sleepless.